Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. No, we are not next door to a dentist. Um, we are, we are, they're doing some construction on the building, and the, the construction moves on. So uh, they may stop. They may not stop. Uh, just pretend it's not there, or you know, pretend you're at the dentist, one of them too. I'm uh, Jim Carafano. I oversee all the foreign national security policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm going to not be here very long. Turn it over to the panel. Um, I, it's just, it's just a, a, a real testament in many ways uh, to the discipline and focus of this administration um, in how it's dealt with uh, foreign and national security policy really since early days of the administration and the publication of the national security strategy. America is a global power with global interests and responsibilities. There are three really important parts of the world that knit the world together to, for the United States. And the, the transatlantic community, Western Europe, the greater Middle East, uh, and Asia, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, while this discussion today is super important, is, is there are areas that are really kind of the, the ball joints or the, the, the connecting tissue to the, the great global connection. And Central Asia is, is certainly one of them and certainly an area that is truly deserving of attention in U.S. policy. Um, what America wants is, is, I think, what many people in the region would want. We want this to be a, a region of peace and stability, and we want uh, it to be a collection of sovereign nations who are responsible and accountable and looking to the prosperity and, and freedoms and security of their own people. Uh, I, I, we commend the administration. I, I commend Luke, who's done a lot of pioneering research in this area. So to hear about the, the, the next steps that the administration is planning on taking in Central Asia is, is really great. So it's great to hear, uh, have them at the, at the Heritage Foundation. So please join me in applause and welcome me on panel, and I'll turn it over to Luke Coffey. So. Thanks, uh, Jim, for those welcoming remarks and that uh, introduction. Now I want to echo Jim's welcome to everyone here at the Heritage Foundation, and also thanks to the administration for coming here today for the launch of uh, this important strategy in what is a very important region of the world. When you look at a map, the Central Asian republics uh, are right in the heart of the Eurasian landmass. And by definition, really, anything that's at the heart of something is important. And we're starting to wake up to this, uh, I think, in Washington, D.C., more and more. When you look at all the challenges and opportunities that are in this one region alone that America is facing, whether it's a, a resurgent Russia, an emboldened China, uh, an Iran increasing its reach uh, outside of its borders, uh, energy issues, energy facing, energy security issues facing Europe, obviously Afghanistan. 
Uh, or look at some of the opportunities with, with trade and promoting economic freedom and good governance. Uh, Central Asia is a region that we cannot afford to ignore. So uh, that being said, uh, we have a wonderful panel of experts uh, here today from the administration. Uh, I will introduce them one at a time right before they speak instead of going down the line and introducing all of them. And also, I will keep my introductions brief. Most of you in the audience, if you're here today on Central Asia, you probably know the faces that are up here. Uh, and plenty of information about their distinguished careers can be found, uh, of course, online. Uh, I will ask uh, each panelist uh, to um, speak for uh, however you know five to ten minutes, and then we will open it up to a question and answer session. And I will ask that whenever we get to that part of the program, you keep your question to the point and pithy, and and not use it as a platform to deliver a keynote address. <laughs> uh, uh, and I, I've been guilty of that in the past myself, so uh, that's why I feel comfortable saying that. So our first speaker today is Lisa Curtis. Lisa is the Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for South and Central Asia uh, at the National Security Council. Uh, Lisa is also a, a friend and former colleague of mine here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, she joined the administration from the Heritage Foundation and before joining Heritage in 2006, she worked for 16 years uh, for the U.S. government in various capacities focused on uh, South Asia. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Lisa. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, it's certainly a pleasure to be back here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, it feels a little bit like being at home. Uh, and I would like to thank uh, Jim Carafano and Luke Coffey for inviting me here today, as well as my colleagues, Ambassador Wells and Gloria Steele. Uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here. And I would also like to acknowledge Ambassador Vahabov, who's here with us from uh, Uzbekistan, the Ambassador to Uzbekistan. Um, and we're here today to talk about the administration's strategy to advance United States national security interests in Central Asia. Um, so this strategy has really been under development for the past year, and it was shepherded by NSC Director for Central Asia, uh, Dr. Eric Rudenschuld, who happens to be here with us today, and who I'm sure many of you know. Uh, the NSC served in a coordinating role uh, to facilitate a holistic approach to developing a strategy across the various U.S. government departments and agencies. So I will provide a brief overview of the strategy, and I'll leave it to my colleagues from State and USAID uh, to talk more about the nuts and bolts and the details and the implementation of the strategy. So recognizing that important shifts have occurred in the region in the last several years, we decided it was time to update our approach and vision to this vital region. Uh, some of the changes that uh, have brought us new challenges as well as opportunities include uh, shifts in leadership dynamics that have given rise to new opportunities for intra-regional cooperation, uh, renewed threats from extremist ideologies and terrorist organizations, namely the impact of the uh, ISIS phenomena, the foreign fighter phenomena, and then uh, repatriating those foreign fighters to their home countries. Um, 
that presents challenges as well as opportunities. Uh, third is the deepening Chinese influence in the region, uh, which also presents some challenges as, as well as opportunities. Uh, fourthly, uh, we see opportunities for Central Asia to support our Afghanistan peace efforts. Uh, but also many things remain the same in the region. And here we can point to continued robust Russian influence in all spheres, political, economic, military, uh, with all of the countries. Uh, public health threats. Uh, we've seen TB in the past. Uh, now we have the coronavirus that we're, we're grappling with. Um, and Central Asia is uh, very much you know, a partner that we want to work with in containing this virus. Um, the challenges surrounding trafficking in persons, migration, as well as the need to improve human rights and democratic institutions. These are all things that we have faced for many years. They continue to be very important. Now, I think our strategy is notable in that it's a long-term policy. Uh, the document takes us through 2025, um, and this reflects the historical openings that we see, but also the enduring opportunities for United States-Central Asia partnership. And let me be clear that we see Central Asia as a geostrategic region of importance in its own right. Uh, we separate uh, this from our involvement in surrounding countries, uh, particularly Afghanistan. So first and foremost, we see the new strategy uh, as re-emphasizing an enduring guiding principle, which is strong U.S. support for the independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity of all of the Central Asian nations, both individually and as a group. We believe that with consistent U.S. engagement on economics, energy, uh, democracy, governance issues, the Central Asian nations will function as a regional block of cooperative partners um, and increase their ability to pursue their own national objectives. Again, we want to ensure the nations of Central Asia have the freedom to choose from a variety of options and partners in pursuing their own national objectives. Uh, second, we want to help reduce terrorist threats and build capacity for addressing these challenges. We want to ensure that Central Asia does not become a hotbed of extremist ideologies and that they can maintain secure borders. Third, we're focused on promoting economic connectivity, uh, improving the region's connections to the global economy, which will enable the nations to avoid becoming overly dependent on any one country. Uh, we also want to promote connectivity between Central Asia and Afghanistan. And this includes in energy, infrastructure, and trade initiatives. We have been deeply appreciative of the support that we have gotten for uh, U.S. peace efforts in Afghanistan, uh, noting that uh, Uzbekistan held a historical uh, conference in 2018, uh, bringing together the different Afghan factions. So we support... Um, or we appreciate that support that we have received and uh, are confident we can continue to co count on that. Uh, fourth, we will redouble efforts to promote rule of law and respect for uh, religious freedom, human rights. Uh, we will continue to champion those values that we, we hold near and dear. Um, and we would like to see the Central Asian states increasingly provide for meaningful input um, by their citizenry 
and to uh, provide for inclusive political systems, including regular elections. Uh, lastly, we will seek to promote United States investment in and development of the Central Asian nations. We'll encourage market opportunities for both United States and Central Asian entrepreneurs, and we'll support conditions that are conducive to local and American investment as we create opportunities for employment and prosperity for the countries of Central Asia. Ultimately, we seek a business environment that is open, fair, and attractive to U.S. investors, uh, and that supports each country's development goals. Uh, we are pleased that the Central Asian nations see value in the C5 plus 1 process, uh, which of course brings the United States and the leaders of all five countries together for common discussion and action. Uh, in fact, Sec Secretary Pompeo uh, was in Tashkent this week uh, to host a C5 plus 1. I'm sure you're going to hear more about that from uh, Ambassador Wells, <clears throat> who accompanied him on that visit. Uh, so we're also uh, happy that uh, and encouraged that the Central Asian countries are coming together on their own accord uh, to discuss regional cooperation, uh, which you know simply would not have happened uh, five years ago. And this development, I think, is encouraging, and it's it's uh, remarkable to see some of these changes that are taking place in this dynamic region. I would just like to end my remarks by raising an urgent issue uh, that this administration has been focused on, and it impacts uh, the Central Asia region. Uh, and this is the Chinese government's uh, repressive treatment of Uyghurs and other religious minorities in Xinjiang province. Uh, we are calling on Beijing to end the campaign of repression and to immediately release the over one million individuals who are being arbitrarily detained. Uh, and we stand by the Central Asian nations that face pressure to deny refuge to those fleeing this religious persecution. It is these countries' sovereign right to help those who ask for assistance, and it's also a fundamental obligation of all law-abiding nations to refrain from returning asylum seekers uh, to face certain persecution or punishment. So that concludes my remarks, and I turn the floor over to my esteemed colleagues. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Lisa. That was a very important point you made there about what's happening in, in China at the end. Thanks for making being so clear on that. Um, our next speaker is Ambassador Alice Wells. Uh, she is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs. At the State Department, she's a career foreign service officer. She's served in postings all around the world, including as ambassador to Jordan. And she's also uh, ser served in senior level positions in the US government back here in, in DC, including as a special assistant to the president for Russia and Central Asia in the White House in 2012 and 2013. And as Lisa pointed out, um, Ambassador Wells was on the trip with Secretary Pompeo. Uh, sh almost straight off the plane, <laughs> uh, so she can uh, give us a, a good update, I'm sure, on uh, what's happening in, uh, in that region. Thank you. Is this on? Um, 
It's a great audience. Thank you for turning out today. I also see uh, several ambassadors uh, to the region, and so it's with a great deal of humility that I offer up these remarks, and I look forward to their contributions. I did return yesterday from Central Asia uh, with Secretary Pompeo, and the trip really offered not only a chance to advance our bilateral agenda with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, uh, but to convene another ministerial meeting of the C5 plus 1, which is that framework mechanism that allows us to engage uh, with all of the Central Asian countries on a single platform to discuss common interests and um, mutual objectives. And I would note that this is the second meeting of the C5 plus one at the ministerial level in the last six months. And it also provided an opportunity for the secretary to brief his counterparts on, on the outlines of our Central Asia strategy. I would emphasize what Lisa emphasized, and that is since uh, the independence of the Central Asian states 28 years ago, the United States has been steadfast in our commitment to the independent sovereignty and territorial integrity of these states. It's, it's basically the holy trinity of U.S. policy to Central Asia, and certainly the Secretary had a chance to reiterate that. And to back this commitment, the United States government, the private sector, and multilateral development banks have provided over $90 billion of assistance in the past 28 years to support infrastructure development, economic growth, peace and security, democratic reform, um, as well as humanitarian aid during times of crisis. And as Lisa described, there have been changes in the region that allow that made it uh, necessary and obvious for us to develop a new Central Asia strategy to replace the one that was approved in 2015. That includes uh, the very important transition we've seen in Uzbekistan, uh, where President Mirzoyev has brought sort of visionary leadership both to his domestic reforms as well as to his stance towards um, Uzbekistan's neighbors. Uh, it was driven by what has been the very uh, stable political transition underway in Kazakhstan, and the strategy obviously builds on the opportunities of advancing a negotiated political settlement in Afghanistan. Uh, this strategy is also very, very importantly, um, capitalizes on the trust and the interests uh, uh, to pursue mutual interests that have been uh, nurtured over the last couple of years by the Central Asian states themselves. We've simply seen a sea change in attitude towards uh, a regional identity. Uh, the Central Asian heads of state convened without the presence of any major powers for the first time in at least a decade in 2018. And then they repeated that session last year, a very important step. So the C5 plus 1 platform, which the United States has long championed, has really emerged, I think, as a critical, valuable diplomatic tool and an organizing principle for us in the region. Um, I think the principal point you should take away from this new strategy is what is not new. Um, in other words, our new strategy reflects a fundamental continuity with previous strategies going all the way back to our support for these newly independent states in 1991 and 92. This continuity is built on the simple fact that the independence and successful growth and development of these countries contributes to U.S. foreign policy and national security. Um, Lisa gave you the, beyond the sovereignty, territorial, and independence, uh, the five areas of, of focus in this strategy, and I'm going to drill down on each of them a little bit. So first on reducing terrorist threats. 
We work with our Central Asian partners on a variety of counterterrorism efforts, including joint terrorism task force, workshops and trainings uh, focused on countering violent extremism and combating online radicalization, uh, supporting the repatriation, rehabilitation, and reintegration of foreign terrorist fighters. Uh, and I think we have to acknowledge that Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and, and Tajikistan are really leading the world in taking responsibility for their citizens um, on these battlefields. We're also working with our Central Asian partners to strengthen border security, which is a critical concern of the nations. We've invested over $90 million toward the effort. We've conducted training activities for over 2,600 border officers. We've established 13 operational border posts. It's an area of intense engagement. Um, the second line of effort is regional connectivity. And we really applaud the advances that have taken place in enhancing regional economic activity, including government-to-government, people-to-people relationships. So what we're trying to do is to help standardize and simplify visa and customs processes, eliminate non-tariff trade barriers through our trade and investment framework agreement, while also convening business people to create new opportunities for trade and entrepreneurship, including the annual Central Asia Trade Forum, which resulted in more than $56 million worth of signed letters of intent in 2018. We're going to continue to support strengthening the region's transit corridors. Uh, one initiative was the Lapis Lazuli Corridor, which was initiated in December of 2018, that provides a transit route for Af Afghan goods, such as cotton, sesame seed, and minerals through Turkmenistan and onto the European market. We're helping to build a Central Asia regional electricity market. We're providing ongoing support for the very important CASA 1000 1300 megawatt transmission line that can bring surplus hydroelectricity from Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan to Afghanistan and Pakistan, where over 80 million people still lack access to electricity. Our public diplomacy programs are bringing people together to create networks of skilled professionals. We're able to rely on now an alumni network of 40,000 students and professionals who've participated in programs. We're working to promote cultural heritage tourism across the region by training museum curators. And I think most demonstrative of our long-term commitment has been our investments in the brightest and hardest working students in the region, including um, by providing scholarships to the only American accredited university, uh, the American University of Central Asia in Bishkek. Um, our third line of effort, obviously, is an important one with the stabilization of Afghanistan. And I remember being so struck when President Ghani visited Uzbekistan for the very first time and said, Afghanistan is a Central Asian state. And it's that principle that we're trying to really um, build the, the linkages around. So we applaud Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan for the rail and electricity lines. We welcome the regional scholarships and technical assistance, including the emergence of Termez as an entrepot for trade and training, the Joint Border Security Academy in Dushanbe, the targeted support that's being offered by Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan for Afghan women's empowerment. Uh, the fourth area, line of effort, is trade and development reforms. And this is critical. Um, since independence, the United States private sector has very, very conservatively invested over $31 billion in commercial ventures in the region, generating thousands of local jobs, building human capacity, and fundamentally upholding the very highest standards, labor, environmental, and debt sustainability. To further expand that American private investment, we're working with each Central Asian country to 
to improve their ability to attract foreign investors from American companies and multinational corporations. We're supporting programs aimed at implementing market-based and public education reforms. We've offered to provide independent experts who can help countries assess the sustainability of infrastructure projects. We're looking to the newly established Development Finance Corporation to provide critical assistance through lending, insurance, and investment products. And we're very pleased to have just concluded an Open Skies Agreement with Kazakhstan uh, that will create opportunities not just for airlines, but for multiple industries in both of our countries. Finally, the fifth line of effort is rule of law and human rights. We're going to continue to champion our values. Um, and that means respect for rule of law in each country, as well as universal respect for human rights, which are essential not just for lasting stability, but frankly, as the Secretary underscored during his visit, they're critical for achieving our goals of increasing trade and foreign investment. You know, countries will take business risk, but they don't want to take political risk. And so how do we demonstrate uh, the, the, the stability um, and the long-term sustainability of our programs in the region? So we look to support civil society, uh, we look uh, to support countries' concrete steps to combat trafficking in persons, to promote religious freedom, and to stand up for the rights, as Lisa detailed, for the oppressed ethnic Kazakhs, Uyghurs, and Kyrgyz in Chinese detention prisons. And it was an extremely moving gathering when the secretary met with the ethnic Kazakhs whose family members uh, were being, frankly, tortured, detained, um, you know, brutalized in a detention system that too much of the world has sought to ignore. Um, I think we've seen very important steps by Uzbekistan to better protect human rights and fundamental freedoms, uh, which helps, I think, to strengthen uh, these freedoms everywhere in Central Asia. In Kazakhstan, the Secretary welcomed President Takayev's uh, December 20 announcement of his first package of reforms to increase space for the rights of freedom of expression and peaceful assembly, and we look forward to their implementation. So in conclusion, yeah, I would say that effective implementation of this strategy will ensure that Central Asia is a stable and secure region that is deepening engagement with the United States. We absolutely see that we are in an era of new possibilities. You know, we look forward to decades of deep, substantive cooperation with Central Asian countries that are not only resilient, but are also free to pursue political, economic, and security interests on their own terms and with partners of their own choosing. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Wells. And I agree. When I saw those photos of Secretary Pompeo meeting with those family members, they were very powerful uh, photos and a stark reminder of what's happening. Uh, our our uh, next and final speaker is Gloria Steele. Uh, she's the Acting Assistant Administrator in the Bureau for Asia uh, at the United States Agency for International Development, or as we commonly say, USAID. Uh, she's had a very distinguished uh, and long-term career focusing on uh, issues, development issues, economic issues in Asia. And in her current portfolio, her current role, she's responsible for 30 countries in Asia with a, a budget more than a uh, billion dollars. So she's going to give us kind of the development side of things, I suspect, today. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Uh, thank you for hosting the launch of the new Central Asia Strategy, and I'd like to thank all of you for joining us here today. Um, for over 25 years, USAID has been working with countries in Central Asia to help promote development, uh, stability, and cooperation among the countries, and more recently, cooperation and integration with, uh, with uh, Afghanistan. 
Central Asia's success is critical to the success and the pro uh, prosperity and stability of the United States. And I think development plays a very critical role in making this happen. Alice talked about what is not new. And in fact, what we're going to do in implementing this uh, strategy is to take lessons learned and build upon programs that we have done in the past and scale them up where, where, where appropriate. So how will USAID help to implement the Central Asia strategy? The first actually is uh, to strengthen institutions that characterize a true democracy. It is foundational to the stability and development of Central Asia. And it also is very important to promoting and attracting investments in the region. Uh, that's because these institutions are important for good governance, they're important for transparency, and they safeguard sovereignty and independence, and they develop resilience to extremist ideology. They promote the rule of law and respect for human rights, which really is important for stability. And as I have said earlier, all of these are important for further development and for attracting investments in the region. To help strengthen state sovereignty and independence, we stand firmly with civil society and independent media to protect civic space, foster media freedom, and improve access to credible information. We will help to counter disinformation uh, in a sensitive region that is surrounded by powers vying for influence. For example, in Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, we are working to strengthen independent media outlets, promote media literacy, and ensure access to quality information. In the Kyrgyz Republic, our partnership has helped the country evolve from dependence on donors to near complete independence <coughs> in managing their own elections. And we look forward to supporting independent domestic election monitoring in the parliamentary elections in this coming fall. By supporting civic and democratic engagement with the youth, we are helping to build resilience and, uh, and challenge extremist ideology. USAID commits itself to promoting religious freedom and to working with faith-based organizations. In doing so, we aim to encourage tolerant and pluralistic societies where hopefully we uh, will be able to prevent or combat extremist ideologies from taking root. Rule of law and human rights are bolstered by swift, transparent, and fair judicial systems. So in Uzbekistan, our programs have uh, worked in the rule of law and have cut the average length of court cases in half, and reducing backlog in cases while building confidence in the judicial system. Moving forward, USAID will, exp uh, will expand this programming to cover economic and administrative courts to create a legal environment uh, that is conducive for investments in the country. We will also work with civil society and government, continue to work in this region to combat the scourge of human trafficking. Both Lisa and Alice have talked about this, and this is a very important issue that we focus on. By enhancing cooperation between source, ter, uh, transit, and destination countries, we will hope to target the root causes of trafficking while identifying successful evidence-based uh, practices that can help us stop human or combat human trafficking. The next is uh, promoting U uh, U.S. investment and development in Central Asia. To promote investments and development in the region, uh, we are working with partner countries to improve the business regulatory environment, uh, ensure contract enforcement, for instance, by uh, strengthening the rule of law, and supporting adherence to international trade and business standards. 
Integration throughout Central Asia, including Afghanistan, is crucial for U.S. investment. Um, that's why for nine years, USAID has hosted the Central Asia Trade Forum, one of the region's largest annual connectivity events that promote regional trade and facilitate participation by U.S. businesses. In 2018, the forum in Tashkent resulted in more than $56 million worth of signed letters of intent. With our most recent forum in Kazakhstan, we know the forum will continue to link Central Asia with global markets, and we hope to continue this work. In addition, since 2015, USAID has facilitated more than $400 million worth of letters of intent to conduct business between Uzbekistan's entrepreneurs and foreign markets with millions in business contracts already completed. This translates uh, to roughly 100 to 1 return on investment with $100 in new trade created for every dollar, US dollar invested. Beyond en enabling enterprise development, we are also working to develop human capacity by improving access to health and education, both of which are critical to sustained inclusive development and growth, as well as the self-reliance self of these countries. Investments in health systems are key to averting major health shocks that drain countries' economies, and we see this now, all the concern about coronavirus, and are critical, they're also critical for promoting economic growth. We are working with host governments to rebuild the shattered uh, post-Soviet health systems and address challenges like TB. Uh, in the Kyrgyz Republic, our programs have cut treatment of times for TB patients in half since 2017. And in partnership with Uzbekistan's national TV program, the incidence rate of TB has also been reduced by half. Equally important, investments in relevant and high-quality education will leapfrog development in these countries, and that is really important. It is important at the household level, it is important at the national level, and it will be important regionally in Central Asia. In Tajikistan and the Kyrgyz Republic, our nationwide education programs have significantly improved reading proficiency and learning outcomes. In Uzbekistan, we are building upon English language instruction to provide alternatives to the Russian language. Regionally, Central Asia will continue to depend on energy and water access to sustain their economies and fuel growth. USAID is supporting the Secretariat of CASA 1000 that will facilitate, as Alice had said, the export of surplus hydropower from Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan to Afghanistan. This cooperation will not only provide energy, which is really important for the growth of industry, but it will create jobs and uh, increase incomes and promote economic growth in the region. While, the U while USAID supports transnational water and energy programs, we are also trying to increase uh, cross-border trade and connectivity at the, at the national and community level. That's why USAID has supported the establishment of 13 small basin councils at eight transboundary rivers uh, to, to support representatives from local governments and communities and share this important, in sharing these important water resources. These councils create fair rules and procedures for water use and prevent conflict. We know that strengthening democratic institutions, promoting economic cooperation, and investing in people will lead to more secure, stable, and uh, prosperous Central Asia.
Looking ahead, uh, we really look forward to cooperating with the countries, working with the countries in Central Asia, and cooperating with other agencies in the U.S. government and in the private sector to implement uh, the new Central Asia strategy. We think it is important for their future, it is important for their prosperity and for their stability, as it is important for us. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was a great way to round out the discussion and open it up to the, uh, the question and answer session. Uh, we have some people here, some of my colleagues with microphones. They're starting to appear on the sides here. Um, so raise your hand. I'll, I'll point you out. They'll bring you a microphone. If you could please state your name and any sort of affiliation you have and keep your questions short, but I'm going to do what everyone in the audience hates, and as the moderator, I'm going to ask the first question uh, to kick us off. Uh, I, I wanted to focus a little bit on Afghanistan. Um, I'm, I love hearing this recognition now that Afghanistan is a Central Asian country. I mean, culturally, linguistically, historically, economically, and geographically, in many ways, it is a Central Asian, at least half of it is in Central Asia. And I remember um, when I served in Afghanistan in 2005, how important and how much time I spent at Manas Air Base in Kyrgyzstan or Karshi Khanabad in Uzbekistan, and how you know even throughout that campaign, even today, we rely so much on the Central Asian republics for refueling and, and uh, air, uh, air traffic rights and, and, and rail links and, and, and road links and everything else. So I think it's great that we're recognizing this besides seeing the Afghan uh, campaign solely through the lens of Pakistan and, and, and somewhat India. So what can you say specifically about what the U.S. is doing to bring Afghanistan and Central Asia, Asia closer together in the economic sense. We talked about the fact that this is happening, but what are there any specifics you could share? Thank you. I'm sure we've, uh, through our trade and investment framework agreement, uh, for instance, we've uh, worked to bring Afghanistan in as an observer country. We'd like them to become a member of the TIFA. That's something we're working towards so that we can create and support a hundred million person market. We've also been um, uh, in discussions with the border states of Afghanistan to talk about setting up trilateral bodies that can ensure that uh, cross-border programs for economic and um, humanitarian and political assistance uh, uh, go forward and that we sustain momentum behind them. And then you know, through our own you know, development, USAID, as well as through the multilateral banks, uh, we're very much encouraging the infrastructure lash-up of the region, which is critical. Now, a lot of this is going to depend on security. You know, it's going to depend on the Taliban and other uh, terrorist forces not attacking or undermining uh, these important projects. And so here, I think we need to do a shout out for uh, the Central Asian country's support for the peace process. Um, as Ambassador Khalilzad uh, uh, works to implement the President's instructions to seek a significant and lasting reduction in violence that would unlock and allow um, all Afghans to come to a negotiating table. Uh, the Central Asian states have been very forward-leaning from, uh, from Uzbekistan's hosting of a peace conference in 2018 to the individual actions these countries have taken to um, help, in some instances, double or triple trade with Afghanistan, as well as build out the people-to-people -people and government partnerships. 
Just one, one specific, I'm sorry, Lisa, no, go no, ahead. No, 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 no. And just one specific uh, example, which uh, both Alice and I talked about, which is the support to CASA 1000, mm. uh, that exports surplus uh, hydropower from Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan to Afghanistan. And this is a really important uh, way of promoting economic growth in the three, uh, in the three countries. Thank you. Lisa? Yeah, I, I think why we have seen uh, such support to the Afghanistan peace process from the Central Asian nations is because they know what happens in Afghanistan directly impacts their own security. Um, and uh, as uh, Ambassador Wells mentioned, uh, Ambassador Khalilzad, our senior representative for Afghanistan reconciliation, has very much made it part of his writ to engage with the Central Asian states um, on uh, his uh, negotiations with the Taliban, with the Afghans. Um, and, you know, he's made several trips to Central Asia. Um, I was with him in December in Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Um, you know, more recently, he's become more focused in, in Doha, of course, in Afghanistan, Pakistan. But he has very much recognized the role Central Asia can play and needs to play in facilitating uh, this peace process. And in particular, what we hear uh, from the Central Asians is concern about ISIS Khorasan, ISIS K. Um, we have made progress against uh, ISIS K in recent months in Nangarhar province, pushing them back. They still have capabilities, so there's still concern from the Central Asians. So I think that that uh, you know this will be an area that we continue to engage on, um, offer to uh, increase our you know cooperation on border security, information sharing. Um, to to rein in these terrorist threats because what happens in Afghanistan uh, can easily flow across the borders into Central Asia. And I think, you know, Central Asia has just as much, if not more, of an interest in seeing a stable, peaceful Afghanistan as the U.S. and its coalition partners. Thanks. I thought we were going to get a break from the drilling, but it sounds <laughs> like it's back. Um, right. We're going to open it up now. Uh, Mohammed uh, caught my attention first in the front here, so if, uh, bring the microphone down. Thank you. Uh, Mohammed Tahir from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. A um, couple of you mentioned about the uh, 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 kind of uh, encouraging, in a way, Central Asian, uh, Asian authorities to stand up against uh, Chinese repression of ethnic minorities in China with, uh, with connection to Central Asia, like Kazakhs and others. Um, what is that exactly you want from Central Asian authorities to do? And what is that United States is uh, uh, like kind of uh, helping Central Asian to stand up as, as the word that you used, Ambassador Wells, against Chinese repression? Is there anything that United States is offering them to stand up against China? Well, as a matter of principle, we urge all countries, not just Central Asian countries, uh, to, uh, to speak out against the human rights abuses that are evident in, uh, against Muslims in all of China, but certainly in Xinjiang. And the countries of Central Asia, several of the countries of Central Asia have uh, deep 
uh, firsthand knowledge of those abuses given the direct impact it has on their own populations who have loved ones, family members um, that are swept up in these detention centers. You know, we appreciate steps by Central Asian states to ensure that no uh, no, um, you know, ethnic Kazakh, Uyghur, Kyrgyz is refueled to China, uh, that the human rights of individuals who reach Central Asia are observed. And we also appreciate, I think, you know, what countries like Kazakhstan can, can do to, um, you know, to promote the, uh, the free and safe travel of uh, compatriots, uh, ethnic compatriots across the border. Um, the, the lady standing up in the back, I think in green, can't really tell from here with the lights. <laughs> I know you're standing. <clears throat> so if we could get a microphone over, perhaps we could pass the microphone down. Thank you. And then, so you know, next we'll go to Ambassador Hoagland, who's on this side. So if we grab the microphone, come around here. here thanks. Thank you so much. I'm Navahori Mama from The Voice of America. Thank you. Um, I have two questions to all of you. Um, number one, what was the main message on Afghanistan to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan? What are they doing specifically to support your current efforts in Afghanistan, military-wise? And uh, as far as we know, both countries don't, both governments don't want you to leave Afghanistan or have their positions changed. What did you hear from, from them? Secondly, to what extent did you discuss the registration of U.S. organizations in Uzbekistan, we, NGOs specifically? We know that several of them are trying to apply, are trying to get in. Uh, what did you hear back from the, um, from the Uzbek administration on them? Um, so those two, thank you. Great, also can I ask, can, can we turn up the microphones a bit? Um, thank you. Right. Did, did you get the question? Yeah, I think the, the first question, correct me if I'm wrong, was what are your messages to, um, on what Afghanistan, to the region? What are they asking? The registration of U.S. organizations. Okay. Thank you. In terms of um, Afghanistan, I think it would, it's important to note that our approach to Afghanistan is conditions based. That you know that our ability to achieve peace in Afghanistan is ultimately based on the Taliban's willingness to to uh, to repudiate terrorism and to eliminate uh, the prospect of Afghanistan being used as a platform for terrorism against our our friends and against the United States. And so, you know, this is very much a methodical approach. It's, uh, it's an approach that we have uh, ongoing consultations with the countries of the region, as Lisa mentioned, that Ambassador Khalilzad, Secretary Pompeo, other senior officials uh, engage um, at all levels to explain and to keep uh, uh, Central Asian countries apprised, but also to solicit the assistance of Central Asia in the areas that we briefed. I mean, we see Central Asia as providing critical ballast to a piece. Uh, that Afghanistan effectively needs to be stitched back into the neighborhood mm -hmm. through economic ties, education ties, you know, the trade, that, that historic, um, the interconnectivity that that region enjoyed needs to be resuscitated. And so, you know, this is a comprehensive approach. And I think you heard of the variety of programs that Gloria briefed on and the diplomatic messages that we provide. Um, in Uzbekistan, where we very much welcome the opening up of the government to us, to the neighborhood, 
Um, last year, we uh, announced about $100 million in assistance to the government of Uzbekistan. Uh, implementers for our assistance program tend to be um, civil society organizations, non-governmental organizations, and so we have worked with and encouraged the registration of these organizations who can help ensure that our education programs, you know, food programs, technical assistance programs, educational scholarship programs move forward, and we're pleased to see uh, that recently there have been steps to to register several of these organizations, and we encourage we encourage the speedy registration of others. Right. Um, I think you have a microphone there. Can you bring it to the gentleman in the maroon uh, sweater, uh, Ambassador Hoagland? He, he's going to be too modest to say, but he was actually involved in the drafting. Uh, I think of the last strategy. Yes, <laughs> So. Thanks. My name is Dick Hoagland. I'm former State Department and currently with the Caspian Policy Center. Uh, quick question. Each of the countries in Central Asia, to one degree or another, follows a multi-vector foreign policy to balance the big four, Russia, China, the United States, and European Union. Of course, the European Union are our partners. Russia and China vie for influence increasingly in old-fashioned ways, new ways. Do you see, especially Lisa and Alice, do you see any way that the United States can, down in the trenches, actually work with Russia and China uh, for the good of Central Asia, or are we just totally stovepiped? Um, great. Thank you, Ambassador Hoagland. It's great to see you. Uh, thanks for taking the time to come here. And uh, of course, yeah, we're, we're building on the shoulders of giants, uh, developing our strategy. Um, and uh, thanks for all your work on the region. Um, so yeah, I would just note that the EU did uh, launch its own Central Asia strategy in, I think, June, June 2019, focused on um, many of the same things, uh, capacity building, uh, promoting democracy, good governance, uh, connectivity is a big issue for them as well. Um, so, you know, we consult with our EU counterparts quite a bit, and I think, you know, we're driving in the same direction and looking for opportunities where we can cooperate uh, on the region. We both see it as, as critical. Um, and, you know, again, coming back to that idea of uh, providing options, alternatives, um, you know, ways to increase trade options, um, getting the energy, you know, out uh, to the West uh, as well as uh, the East uh, so that these countries um, have, have uh, these opportunities. Um, in terms of uh, working with Russia and China, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thought. Of course, you know, we see um, competition. Um, as I stated in my remarks, you know, Russia has always had a tremendous amount of influence in this region. We don't expect that to change. We're not trying to match that. Uh, we just, you know, want to be present. We want to provide alternatives uh, for the countries. We want to continue to protect um, as much as we can uh, their ability to remain sovereign, independent nations, as we've always done since they gained independence um, over 25 years ago. Um, and China, you know, look, China's uh, providing infrastructure, um, um, assistance, you know, much needed uh, development assistance. Um, but, you know, the only thing that we are concerned about is that 
this uh, infrastructure financing remains transparent, that we don't see countries getting over-indebted and thus losing their sovereignty. Um, so that, you know, that, that, that is the kind of thing we're concerned about. And I'm sure you've seen the launch of the Blue Dot Network. Uh, this is a, a sort of clearinghouse, uh, if you will. Uh, it's very new. Uh, we uh, launched it with the Australians and the Japanese last November. Uh, we're now fleshing it out. But it's essentially a way to, um, you know, ensure that uh, nominated infrastructure projects are um, using transparent financing, that they involve the private sector, that they're following environmental standards, that they're benefiting uh, the people in the regions um, that they uh, are supposed to be benefiting. And if, if they reach these standards, they'll be given a, a blue dot or a certification, if you will, a Michelin star of approval. Um, and we think this is a, a good way uh, to continue to encourage um, private sector involvement in infrastructure development, transparency, um, providing alternatives so that countries have choices in um, how they're going to meet their development needs. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's, that's all I'll say on the issue. Thank you. Yes. I would just add, I mean, there, there seem to be, on the surface, that it would be obvious that there are areas of overlapping interest, you know, whether it's counter-narcotics or trafficking or health issues or counter-terrorism. Um, but it really does remain to be seen the willingness of, of other countries in the region to actually cooperate, you know, against a backdrop of incredible disinformation campaigns. I think that, you know, we have a very, um, you know, our brand is clear, you know, sovereignty, independence, territorial integrity. And you contrast that to Crimea, you know, or you contrast that to predatory debt. And we, we occupy a very unique um, and actually very beneficial pole for the Central Asian states. We'll go back on this side. Um, the lady here <clears throat> in the front. Uh, hello, my name is Catherine Putz. I'm an editor with The Diplomat covering Central Asia. Um, my question is on sort of the interrelated issues of religious freedom and counter-extremism efforts. Um, is there anything in this strategy to confront some of the complexities between those two policies and that regional governments often have um, a habit of sacrificing sort of religious freedom in the name of security, and is there any efforts within this strategy and the implementation of the strategy to sort of pick to those two things apart and deal with them separately um, at the same time. Thank you. I mean, we support, um, we want every country to have a healthy security um, policies and to, um, to protect their borders and to protect their people, but that shouldn't be conflated with uh, a, a mandate to suppress uh, natural religious activity. And so in our engagements with countries of the region, we've uh, developed uh, and are in the process of developing roadmaps, like what are policies that make sense in terms of registration and the support for people's, you know, natural desire to express and participate in religious life. And the secretary had an outstanding meeting in Uzbekistan with leaders of the uh, religious communities, both majority as well as minority religious communities. And I think there's you know, great, um, first off, there's progress. And we welcome that progress. We, we'd like to see more. There were, I think, eight uh, 
uh, non-majority uh, religious uh, churches registered last year. I think there are 20 more seeking registration. But these are practical steps that are steps that will ultimately make the societies of, of, of Central Asia more uh, durable and resilient, in our view. Can I just add something quickly? I've been uh, saying this uh, for the last few years since I've been in this position whenever I engage with um, leaders of Central Asia, that you know, providing an environment uh, of religious freedom and allowing people to freely worship as they choose um, actually decreases the chances of uh, people getting attracted to extremist ideologies. So it seems counterintuitive, but it's something that I think is absolutely true and that we continue to, to explain and promote um, in our dialogue. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman uh, there, and then we'll go to the lady in the front row. Hi. Thank you very much. My name is Bakhtiur Safarov, Central Asia Consulting. Uh, I have a suggestion, maybe recommendation to people who wrote the policy to add uh, maybe seven column or six plus on a leadership, because what's happening in a region is a very crisis, deep crisis on leadership, because after this collapse of the Soviet Union, it's been 30 years, and most of these countries turning into family enterprises. So I would just add something into leadership, because all of them have positional leadership, which is very unhealthy, and it's actually hurting everyone in the region. Thank you. Um, and then the lady in the front row here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Deirdre. I'm a foreign policy reporter with USA Today. Could you talk about uh, the Trump administration's counter-narcotics strategy in Afghanistan? I didn't hear anyone list that as a focus of this strategy. And there are concerns um, among lawmakers in both parties that the the administration doesn't really have a strategy, um, even though the drug trade funds the Taliban and other um, terrorist groups. Thank you. Thank you. That would probably be for you, Lisa. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, look, the, the um, uh, counter-narcotics issue is an extremely important uh, issue in Afghanistan. The problem has been there for a long time. The U.S. government has uh, invested billions of dollars over the last several years. Um, so it, it is uh, certainly something that we recognize um, does, like you say, fund the Taliban to some extent. So uh, we have tried to get at that issue um, and and uh, cut off uh, some of that ability to, to fund that. You know, I think one of the most successful programs that we've um, engaged in uh, has been, you know, alternative livelihoods. That's been something that we've invested a lot in. There's been some progress in uh, some parts of the country on this. But, uh, you know, frankly speaking, this is a major um, comprehensive problem that is uh, intertwined with, you know, the, the criminal networks, corruption, um, uh, shortfalls in the legal system, it's a very complicated issue. And I think, you know, we try to get at it from, you know, our numerous, numerous um, uh, programs, maybe um, Gloria can talk about this a little bit more uh, than I can, but, uh, you know, I know that, you know, we do try to uh, provide help with uh, the legal system and training and, um, uh, you know, fill in those gaps, try to fill in those gaps. Um, you know, there's a military component to this, uh, tracking down some of the, the kingpins. We, we've, we've tried that. We've been involved in, in those efforts. So, you know, I would just simply say this is a massive, complicated problem. 
and it's going to have to be resolved in conjunction with addressing the security issues, the insurgency issues, um, and it's it's not something that you're going to be able to solve on its own. It's it's caught up in the other complicated problems of the region, and it's going to take um, regional support. Um, you know, the, these drugs do travel through the neighboring countries, um, so they're going to have to become part of, of this resolution as well. Yes, please. Um, I would just add, I mean, the Central Asia component, obviously, we're very focused on border security. We have extensive programs through our international codecs and law enforcement uh, that work on, you know, container security, et cetera. But I would say, in echoing Lisa's uh, assessment, we've done, I think, remarkable, substantial work in Afghanistan in building specialized investigative units and um, and and law enforcement units focused on counter-narcotics. But the fundamental fact is that 85% of opium production takes place in areas that are controlled or contested by the Taliban. And so fundamentally, you're going to have to address the security issue you know, through a peace process um, that allows you then to tackle the root causes um, and to expand programs like uh, income substitution. I'd like to add that this is, uh, as um, Lisa said earlier, it requires, this issue is very complex and requires uh, efforts in various areas. It's an economic issue, it's, uh, it's a rule of law issue, it's an issue related to good, bad, bad governance, corruption. And of course, looking at the issue of extremism, and you know, it is a source of funding for extremist groups. And so being able to find the root causes of extremism will be necessary also in addressing this particular issue of uh, narcotics. Thank you. I've neglected this side, I apologize. Uh, the lady in the red and, and black cardigan, I think it is, there, yeah. And then I'll come back in the middle to you, sir. Hi, I'm Dr. Candace Campbell from Progress Humanity and NGO. My question is, do we have a strategy or what have we been doing to develop clinical practitioners in terms of acute and chronic health care? Which I understand if there's no hydroelectric power, that's going to be a problem. But I'm just wondering what they're doing to treat the people of the region. Right. Um, as I mentioned earlier, a key component of our program is improving access to quality health care. Uh, we are working on improving health systems. Um, and although I talked only about uh, tuberculosis and addressing that, in, in what our programs do are address the, all the systems that make uh, health care better in these countries. So we provide technical assistance, capacity building, and then give access to uh, equipment uh, and other services that these countries need. And this is actually true, I mean, I has mentioned earlier, it is very critical, uh, not only as a health concern, but also as an economic concern, and an equality concern for the, for the countries. And so this is an area that we put a lot of focus in. Uh, the gentleman here, I think he's closer to this side here. Good morning, Mark David Miller. I headed a trade council for Kyrgyzstan uh, a number of years ago. Uh, my question is regarding CASA 1000, which I've heard several times today and several times in the last year. I didn't hear that phrase for more than a decade. For those uh, living in New York City, it reminds me of the Second Avenue subway project. Um, CASA 1000 seems to be gaining momentum and seems to be go uh, scheduled to go online 
in a reasonable amount of time, and I think it's going to be a game changer in the region. What do you feel, uh, this is to anybody on the panel, uh, what do you feel was uh, different today that allowed CASA 1000 to go through as opposed to 15 years ago? Uh, and do you see other projects like CASA 1000 that could be game changers that have been sitting basically in somebody's desk drawer for a number of years that due to a better political climate of the region that could uh, go online in the next uh, few years to also improve the lot of the, uh, the region? Thank you. I think one of the big differences is the openness to regional, truly regional interconnectivity, uh, connecting uh, Central Asia with Afghanistan, and uh, a commitment to, to doing that. Uh, I think it's a very important uh, thing. And we are continuing to look at different programs uh, in water, uh, as well as in business trade, uh, to connect uh, the countries in Central Asia and between Central Asia and Afghanistan. Similar concepts. Uh, gentleman in the front. My name is Kami, but I'm with the Pakistani spectator. And Ms. Curtis, you said in your paper and in your talk that you are trying to keep Afghanistan a little separate. Uh, is that really possible given Afghanistan has a large uh, Uzbek, Tajik, uh, Hazara community that are very much relevant in the context of Central Asia. And uh, Ms. Wells, my question is about BRI, a Belt Road Initiative, in the context of Pakistani uh, seaport Gwadar and uh, China's way of overtaking like it did in Sri Lanka, uh, given that Pakistan I mean, in Muslim in India are outperforming in many socio-economic indicators to their Pakistani brethren shows that Pakistan is really has become, it's very difficult to, to, to sustain itself. So given Pakistan is getting so much loan in different programs, are you fearing that China might take Gwadar at some point because Pakistan would be unable to pay, repay its debt? And if that happened, do you think we should try to improve our relationship with Iran? Because then that is the best option if we lose Gwadar or if we lose Pakistan in that context. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Um, I think maybe you misunderstood what I said. I, in my remarks, what I said was Central Asia is a region of geostrategic importance in and of itself, uh, regardless of uh, the surrounding countries. That doesn't mean that you know one of our goals is not to integrate Afghanistan with Central Asia economically um, and facilitate some of those linkages in their connectivity. But my point was merely to say that um, you know even if Afghanistan were to miraculously become stable and um, peaceful, uh, we would still very much have a, a focus on Central Asia um, because of all the reasons that we've discussed today. So we, we see it as in, um, an, a very important region strategically to the U.S. in its own right. On uh, Belt and Road or on CPAC, I mean, our message is the same whether we're engaging with uh, Tajikistan or Pakistan or Sri Lanka. Um, 
Cambodia. It's that uh, investment infrastructure is critical. Um, we understand you know, countries need it. The estimate in the Indo-Pacific region of $27 trillion in infrastructure investment required means that no one country is going to be able to be the answer uh, to uh, development. And instead, uh, countries um, are going to benefit most if they create the regulatory environment that attracts and unlocks uh, Western capital and private sector investment, where we excel at and where American firms have been um, tremendous drivers of economic growth and modernization. And I say that coming you know, from Kazakhstan, where you have the tremendous example of what partnership with um, Chevron, Shell, ExxonMobil has provided. It's provided over 90% employment for Kazakhstani nationals. It's driven, it's fueled the economy. It's been an engine of modernization. That's what we'd like our partners to benefit from. And so this is not a punitive mes message when we discuss um, concerns over debt sustainability. It's we, we want to be able to help and assist countries to be able to tap the most sustainable, high standard infrastructure investment that will pay dividends for them as well as for shareholders. We have time for one final question. Um, the gentleman there and then. Well, okay. If We'll do them together. If you make them short, we can wrap it up nicely. Sure. Alex Sanchez, James Defense. Can you talk about the State Department's Global Peace Operations Initiative, via which the U.S. has helped um, train Kazakhstani troops to participate in United Nations peace operations? Was that discussed during Secretary Pompeo's trip to the region recently? And is there any, are there any plans to expand it to other countries in Central Asia? Thank you. Thank you. And we'll take uh, this question as well. Uh, we'll do it together. Um, Thank you. Uh, Todd Prince from Radio Free Europe. Uh, what are you doing to fight money laundering that is depriving the region of investment? And considering the state of civil society and transparency in Uzbekistan, how confident are you that privatization in Uzbekistan will be done in a transparent ma manner and not lead to the creation of, of a small group of oligarchs as we've seen in other post-Soviet states? Thank you. Um, I frankly don't have the data points on peacekeeping um, at my fingertips, but we do encourage and invest in the capacity of countries, and I believe Kazakhstan has recently been involved in peacekeeping, but I st will provide information, follow-up uh, to you directly. Um, it's an area that helps build uh, the capacities and skills of, of, of militaries. It's a, it's a public good, and across the region, we've been very supportive of peacekeeping operations. Um, it wasn't specifically on the Secretary's agenda this trip, but it's an important issue that we raise nonetheless. Um, when it comes to money laundering and privatization, you know, all I can say is that you know, President uh, Mirzoyoyev has um, you know, rhetorically set a, a very uh, high bar for what he wants to achieve in reforming and transforming the Uzbekistan economy. Uh, that won't happen you know, if it's crony capitalism or, um, or, or, or privatization deals gone wrong. And so you know, what we are hearing from the government of Uzbekistan 
one is an intense desire and interest in continued technical assistance, whether it's from the United States, the UN, the EU, uh, to develop their capabilities to um, not only to privatize, but also to, again, attract new foreign direct investment in their country. We see interest by American, major American companies in Uzbekistan and in the region. We're encouraging that. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that Secretary Ross led business delegations to both Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan is a real, uh, a very important signal of our interest in ensuring that uh, American companies, um, including now through the New Development Finance Corporation, have a role to play. Great. Oh, sorry, Lisa. Oh, I was just going to add, yes, um, Alice is right. Uh, Shortly after the um, historic visit of the first president, Nazarbayev, uh, to the White House in January 2018, Kazakhstan did agree to send, uh, for the first time, a peacekeeping mission uh, to Africa. So we were uh, very appreciative of that. Um, but that, that's all I'm aware of in the region in terms of peacekeeping. Great. Well, that concludes uh, today's program. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists. Uh, this, uh, the, the video from this program will be available on the heritage.org uh, website, so check it out. And uh, thank you everyone for coming, and, and thank you for coming here today uh, to talk about this important strategy. Thank you. Thanks, Luke. Good to see you. Thank you, yeah. yeah.